If you haven't already closed your Bible, I'm going to ask that you would find Ezra 7 and or 8. We'll use both this morning um, and be ready to follow along. I'm going to begin in Psalm 122. David writes in the first two verses, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. And I want to start with that to ask a couple questions because you can see King David is excited to be in the house of the Lord. That's what he wants. So two questions I have related this morning as we begin the message is one, did you prepare your heart and mind before coming here today? And these aren't trick questions. They're just straight questions. And it's okay if your answer to that is no. We all come sometimes into worship and we're not ready. But it's a good question to ask for analysis. Did you prepare your heart and mind before coming here today? And the second question is closely related and has to do with expectation and why you would prepare. Do you have a belief that you might meet the Lord in this place today? We heard it in the children's message very well, that we should be prepared to actually meet God. And God isn't just confined to this place, but when we gather together and worship, do you have an expectation that we're going to meet God and experience him? And then did you come prepared to do that? David writes, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. David delights in being in a place where he will meet the Lord. Are you, are, you are in a place where you can meet the Lord today. So even now, let's ask the question, how can I be prepared for God's presence? That's really what we're getting into this morning, and I want to make the point now and as we go through that your preparation to receive what God gives is as important as what God actually gives. That is to say, we're not going to be able to receive the gift if we're not ready to receive it. It it matters if we're going to be able to take it in. It matters that we're actually prepared to take it in and say yes to what God has to offer. So let's uh, move ourselves into Ezra by actually starting at the very beginning of Scripture just for a moment to put ourselves back in context. And I want to make a a truth statement this morning that's simple yet profound. God is faithful. Can you say that with me? God is faithful. And that's true. And you can see that through the whole of Scripture. And you can see that the faithfulness of God is being played out in the book of Ezra because of God's covenant that he made with his people in the first place. Of course, there's the act of creation that we run into in Genesis uh, uh, 1 and 2. But of importance to us today is in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, where God establishes a covenant with Abraham to bless his descendants. And those are the people that we're running into now in the book of Ezra. God uh, made a covenant with them, and God's covenant is the rationale for God's continued faithfulness to Israel. And we see that playing out in the return of the people to the land. And so the subtitle of of our sermon series, Ezra, we've got this week and then in two weeks we finish it up, has been returned to faithfulness. God was never unfaithful, the people were. They suffered the consequences, and now God's bringing them back 
to that faithfulness that God always had and always wanted from his people. They're being brought back into the land. By this point in Ezra, chapter 7, the temple has been rebuilt so they can actually delight in going to the Lord's house. And they can actually recognize that, that God is going to be there. His, that's a visible, uh, visible image of his presence is there in the temple. God's Shekinah glory in the middle. They're delighted to go back. And we actually make a 60-year jump from where we were last time we were in Ezra, chapter 6, to this time. So we got the long introduction to Ezra. He's the son of the son of the son of all these people. And that's that Ezra that we're talking about if you were in doubt. We move from Zerubbabel as a leader and Joshua as a leader to Ezra now. The temple is put together. And, and this next wave of people, about 5,000, are going to come to the land to be able to, to work in the temple now and reestablish the rites in the temple again. So when we go back to Ezra chapter 7, there's a phrase that happens six times within the context of those two passages where it says, the hand of the Lord was on him. And it happens in a couple different ways that there's uh, permutations of that too, but it, the hand of the Lord was on him happens six times, and we should take notice when that occurs. I mean, the basic meaning of that is that God's power is there to do what God wills, and God is blessing Ezra in those moments. And when it says the hand of the Lord, just so we're clear, uh, God doesn't have a physical hand. That's what's called anthropomorphic language. It's using human terms to describe God. We know 2 Corinthians 3 says it well, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is. There's freedom. The Lord is spirit. Scripture backs that up. God's not in a physical form uh, in Ezra when the hand is on him. It's putting human language to give us understanding of how God is working. God is blessing Ezra. But we can ask a couple questions about this. And the first is, why was the hand of the Lord on Ezra? Half of that equation of, of the answer to that we've already covered. It's God's covenant faithfulness to his people. God has always been faithful, and exile was part of that faithfulness. When God sent some of his people away or allowed them to face the consequences of their sin, that's still part of God's faithfulness. Because consider the alternative if they had been continued, continual unfaithfulness, and God says the covenant has been given up on your side, he could have let them just be done as a people. But in God's faithfulness, he said, no, in fact, I'm going to allow you to learn the hard way, so that we can continue this relationship in faithfulness on the other side of exile. And so the people start to come back. God allows them to rebuild the temple. And we can recognize uh, in the midst of, of some of the worst moments of that exile, we have the book of something like Lamentations, where in the middle it tells us more of the rationale of why God would do this. Lamentations 3.22 points out, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. God's faithfulness is going to allow us sometimes to face consequences so that we can still receive the full consequences if we're willing to accept it. And he's giving that chance to his people. He is faithful to his covenant. So why was the hand of the Lord on Ezra? We've got that half of the equation. But the other half is the human initiative piece of the equation. Ezra is faithful to God's ways. And you can see that through the text. If you go to Ezra 7, verse 10... It says, for Ezra, it's right after it says the gracious hand of God was on him. In 9, it says, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord, 
and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. I like the way the King James has this, where it says Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. And I think there's the lesson for us today. He's prepared for what God's giving. And thus he's going to recognize the blessing when it comes. So if we understand, remembering the whole context that we're in here with Ezra, they faced exile, they've rebuilt the temple. When they were rebuilding the temple, we've already gone through this, Ezra takes a lot of time to talk about the opposition that they faced in rebuilding the temple. Uh, But that opposition didn't stop them. They were prepared. They were prepared for what God was giving them as a people because of their faithfulness now to God's ways. And Ezra is an obvious uh, uh, recognition of that faithfulness in one person. And God blesses that. They knew their mission. They knew their priorities. And so God says, now you're back in the land. Now fulfill what I have in mind. And so I want to look at two things as we kind of uh, cut through a few different verses in Ezra 7 and 8. Um, I want to ask then, when it comes to preparation, what can we see from Ezra in chapter 7 and 8? What is the fruit of preparation? What results from the fact that they were prepared? And then also, what is their response to that fruit, to what God provides for them, because they had a prepared heart? So let's talk about the result, the fruit side of things. If we go to Ezra 7, verse 6, it says, This Ezra came up from Babylon... He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked. Why? For the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. The king had granted him everything he asked. That's an important thing to catch. So the fruit of preparation, and of Ezra and the people, both turning to the law of the Lord to follow that, is that God granted the means to accomplish his work. And I want us to, to make sure we hear the full, fullness of that. God granted the means to accomplish whose work? God's work. I'm not preaching health and wealth gospel this morning. If you follow the law of the Lord, if you're faithful to God, that doesn't mean you're going to get rich. It means you're going to be able to accomplish God's work. There's a big difference there. He was granted the means to accomplish the work. The late Warren Wearsby commenting on this uh, section of Ezra, he points out, our God is the Alpha and the Omega. What he starts, he finishes. If God is at the beginning of the journey and we trust him, he'll remain with us throughout the journey and take us to our destination. And that's exactly what's happening here. Ezra is experiencing the blessing of God because he has turned towards God in faithfulness. And God is rewarding that, allowing him to finish the work that God has called them to. So you can see that they've been granted the means. The king has given them everything they they need. And then further, if you go to verse 18 of chapter 7, You can see that it gets better, because this is a letter written by King Artaxerxes I, the king at this time, and he's telling them all the stuff he's giving them, but in verse 18, he says, you and your fellow Israelites may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. So he gave them means that they were going to travel with in order to take care of the, the work that they had to do, and he says, by the way, You don't need to keep the change or give back the change and you don't need to turn in the receipts. I trust you. Just take it. Whatever's left over, use it for the work. Keep the money. He goes on further. If you go to verse 25, part C, it's the last, it's a long verse. 
and then beyond, it says, and you are to teach any who do not know them. That's the law. It's the very bottom of the screen that if you're looking. Verse 26, whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, punishment, confiscation of property or imprisonment. So the king has granted them what they need to accomplish the work. The king has also said, by the way, any extra, you just go ahead and keep that and use that for the work as well. And by the way, when you get to the land, I don't just want you guys to follow the law, you faithful people, but I want you to teach others how to follow the law so they can be faithful in the land too. I mean, that's quite a lot of license that the king has now given them. The hand of the Lord was on Ezra. God granted the means to accomplish the work. God also gave the power to do the work we can see. So if we look at Ezra 28, I'm going to add 27, it's not on the screen. Uh, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. Verse 28, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because why? The hand of the Lord my God was on me. I took courage. Let's stop there. Now you can see not only do they have the means, they have the power to do the work of God. Ezra now has the courage to complete the task because of all that God has given him. Furthermore, the second half of verse 28, that last part, he he says, I took courage and what else? Gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. So he's got the people he needs and the courage he needs with the means that God has given him to complete the work. And now the tricky part comes in because now they have to travel with all that stuff through dangerous territory to get to Jerusalem. And now he has to trust that God is good on his word to get him there. If we skip forward to chapter 8, verse 21. I'm making you work for it this morning. 22, excuse me. It says, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks at him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So they petitioned God about that. They didn't petition the king for someone to go with them. This was a dangerous journey. They weren't taking the straight route. Nobody would do that on purpose. It took you through the desert. That was certain death. They went up and around following the Euphrates River and coming down. Ezra has to now trust God. That God will get him to where he needs to go with all the things that he needs to go in order to accomplish the work. And they call on the Lord for that. So it tells us the hand of the Lord was on him, but now they have to live it out. It's not just going to be handed to them. They have to step out in faith at this point. And I want to just point out on a personal note, you and I and everyone in this room have the same power that Ezra has to step out and trust this way. We have the power of prayer, as it turns out, to call on the Lord in those difficult moments and say, okay, God, I have something difficult ahead, a conversation, whatever it is. And I I can tell you, I found from personal experience that when I actually call on God in prayer for those moments, God can give me an opening for this conversation I need to have or whatever it is. God gives us the power to actually do it. God often gives us the opening to actually have that conversation. You and I have the same power that Ezra is experiencing here. The hand of the Lord is indeed on us if we just ask. 
So they have to now trust in God. We'll skip to the end of the story. We're in verse uh, 31 of chapter 8. It says, On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. Here we run into it again. The hand of our God was on us. And he did what? Protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. They stepped out in trust. They knew they had the power of God on their side, but they had to actually follow through and make the long journey. All of them, men, women, children, livestock, all the goods that they've got to carry, bandits along the way, and safe passengers granted. Now they have one other thing that they can add to all the blessing that God has given them, and that's a testimony of God's goodness. If we summarize then, what we've seen is that God provided the means, the, the cash basically, and the goods. God gave them the opportunity not only to follow the law, but to teach the law. God gave them the courage to do the work, the leaders to do the work. God was faithful to his promise, and now God's given them a testimony of his goodness through all of this. It's the fuel to keep going for them, no matter what could come ahead. They can look back on all of God's goodness because they trusted and turned themselves towards God. So we can see the fruit of everything, but we need to ask the other side of the question, what is Ezra's response to this testimony and to God's goodness? I think this is a very important thing to to ponder and to put into practice. If we go back to verses 27 and 28 of chapter 7, so 7, 27, and 28, it's got this benediction passage here. After the letter from King Artaxerxes, It says, praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. He gives this praise and thanks to God as the response to God's goodness to him. They haven't even made the journey at this point, but his first and initial response to all that God has provided is to give thanks after experiencing God's faithfulness to his covenant. And so we can ask a question, kind of starting to come back to our original question of preparation. How have you experienced God's faithfulness today? If we rearrange the question, we could also ask it this way. What reason do you have to give praise and thanks to God this morning? Have you counted it up recently? I'll give you two things to put on your short list if you want to start. Uh, One is, you're here, and you exist, and God created you and created you good. That should be on the start of the list. We actually exist. God gave us life as a gift. Now, we recognize that the power of sin to pervert that good gift is always around us. The curse of sin is, is ever-present, and sometimes we knowingly participate in it, and sometimes we unknowingly are affected by it, or knowingly affected by it. All kinds of things happen, but we can still start with the fact that God created us, and we were created good. And then we can move to the second thing, is that in spite of sin, and our culpability in it, and the effect it's had on us, God rescued us if we'll only say yes to that rescue through Jesus. Those two things alone are plenty to give thanks and praise to God for. 
You can add to the list, but I'm starting the list for you. What reason do you have this morning to give thanks and praise? Because that's what we do every week when we gather in worship, is we begin by praising God for who God is and what God has done. So they praise and they thank God for his faithfulness. Another thing they do, and we may find this a little more challenging in our part of the world, in verse 21 of chapter 8, this is before they've begun the journey, it says, there by the Ahava Canal, this is Ezra speaking, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. Two things, and I'm going to add a third that sits behind those. Fasting and humility are there. And I'm going to add that what sits behind both of those is anticipation. All three things go together. Fasting is the pathway to clarity of conversation with God. And it's one of the rather ignored disciplines in our corner of the evangelical world. If you, not even going outside of our country, although if you go outside of our country, you'll see fasting practiced all around the world by brothers and sisters in Christ with great power and effectiveness. But even within many Latino uh, evangelical churches, African-American evangelical churches, and many immigrant evangelical churches, uh, you see fasting as a very important part of life and regular life. It provides clarity for us to actually hear God and be prepared to receive what God has to offer. And I recognize not everybody can do it uh, physically from food. You can do it from other things. But, if, but fasting, whether it's from food or other things, also provides humility because we're reminded of who is our sustainer and provider of all things. We're humbled in that moment. And I added anticipation because that's what it does. When you've given up something good for something better, like you're fasting, you're actually, you end up clearing out a lot of other things and you end up clearing a pathway to hear God so clear that you're anticipating what God is going to say next. You're anticipating God's presence. And you're ready to respond when God calls. I, I personally have been trying to do it over the past couple of years with marginal success as a weekly regimen. It's hard. But a couple of years ago, I was able to do it for four days and, and I'm still living off of, of the fumes of that because it creates such a clear pathway to hear God and to commune with God that it's a shame that we would ignore it so much. But here, that's how they start their journey. They say, we're going to clear everything out. We're going to stop and we're going to be able to make sure that we not just praise and thank God, but hear clearly God before we start out in trust on this journey. I don't think that's a word to ignore easily from Ezra. The last thing I'd point out that we can recognize about how they respond, and you're going to like this one, is verse 32, chapter 8, verse 32. So we arrived in Jerusalem where we did what? We rested for three days. Folks, there's nothing wrong with a good nap. You can write that down on your notes. Pastor Evan said there's nothing wrong with a good nap. It's okay to stop and rest. We need to ask a question about it. What do we do with a pause? 
You know, we don't know when they're, they're pausing perhaps as an extended Sabbath, like a three-day weekend, basically. And consider this. They've got all the stuff to set up the rites and rituals of the temple again. They've taken this long journey in great anticipation of that day. And what do they do? They don't immediately set to work. They say, no, this is important enough that we need to stop. And we need to recognize that God told us it's important to rest, not just to work. They prepared, and then they stopped and rested. And in that moment, it gives us more clarity when we pause to be able to praise and thank God. That's why we gather together and worship, and we're not working here. We're kind of resting, in a sense, to praise and worship God. And we get to anticipate, not with anxiety what's going to come next, but with hope what God will do when we rest. That's why the Lord gave the Sabbath, so we'd stop and take stock of what God has done and what God will do and be able to commune with the Lord and with the people he's given us. They rested for three days after a large work like this. Both growing up in this church and then when I worked for Covenant Bible College many years ago, I've been to Mexico eight or, eight or so times on missions trips, um, sometimes working with kids, uh, but the last couple times I went, I was building houses uh, for people, and uh, that was new work for me. I'm not really a handy kind of person, uh, but you, in that context, you hand mix your concrete. You don't have one of those little mixers and that kind of thing, and it's hard and heavy work, um, and when you're laying a foundation, many of you that have worked with concrete know this way better than I do, but this was all new to me when I was doing this. It takes so much work to prepare the ground and get it ready, and set the forms. And you have to do all of that stuff correctly because when you get the concrete ready, you just start pouring and pour and pour and pour and then skim it out, and it's, it happens fast at that point. It has to. The preparation matters for proper results. It's the same with us and God. The preparation matters for proper results. We can hear God clearly if we're not prepared, but... Sometimes it's going to be hard for us to receive. How much better is it when we're actually prepared to receive what God has to give? And how much more is God going to come knocking when we're actually prepared to hear what God has to give? So are you prepared to meet God today? I want to uh, put three challenges before you to think through this morning for the, the purpose of preparation to be able to clear the pathway to hear God more often and more clearly. And the first is, consider which one of these you might want to move towards this week. Is this a time in, in your life when you need to fast? That is, maybe it, it isn't food, but maybe you need to ask the question, what needs to go so I can meet God? To really take stock. Is this a time, perhaps, uh, when you need to anticipate or you ask, what needs to change so I can meet God? And I want to I point out, uh, when it comes to these two things, when it comes to the issue of the fasting part, what needs to go, we have a game around our house um, that's called Kube. Some of you have played it with us. It's a Swedish game consisting of throwing blocks of wood at other blocks of wood. It's painfully simple and yet challenging at the same time. The story goes that it was invented by... Uh, what we'll call Swedish middle schoolers of the Middle Ages, let's say the 1100s, who were supposed to go out and collect firewood as one of their chores in the day. 
And you can imagine if you put yourself in that position, if you're an 11, 12, or 13-year-old boy and you know that uh, you have this chore to do and maybe there are some other chores on your list you don't want to do as much, you could take a chore that takes this long and make it take this long, right? If you make a game up where you throw the blocks of wood at the other blocks of wood. So that's probably what happened is what they believe. I point that out because if you look at that first question, what needs to go? In every generation ever, people can be distracted. Those guys, those kids going out to collect firewood can easily be distracted. That's no stretch of the imagination. But whether you have all the technology in your house or none of the technology in your house, something will always distract us, even our own minds. And so part of that first question, what needs to go is, what's distracting you from actually hearing and receiving the message God has for you? When it comes to anticipation, that's not a question of distraction, but priority. What needs to change? How do you need to prioritize your life so that you actually are in a place to hear God more often. And either one of those might get to the third one, rest. Obedience begins in Sabbath. That sometimes we need to stop all of our routine to be able to hear God clearly and be able to take stock and say what needs to change, what needs to go, and, and mark that down so that we can then start again with God in clarity. Preparation to meet God, it turns out, often, meet, often leads to meeting God. When we're prepared, often we can encounter God in new, rich, and profound ways and hear God's voice clearly. And if we were to push this just a little further, if, if you're one who says, okay, I, I can hear God or I want to hear God, then if we look at this just a little further, if God gives you the power and the means to hear God, and we're asking the question of preparation, what are you going to do when the message comes? That's really the bottom line of where we're going here. So God gives me a message. Am I actually prepared to do what I need to do with it when God gives the gift? Your preparation to receive what God gives is, is as important as what God's going to actually give. And we need to be prepared to hear God clearly so that we can respond appropriately when God calls on us. Let's pray as we prepare to go to the table. Lord, we pray simply this morning. Help us prioritize. Help us be less distracted. Help us rest in you so that we can hear and respond. So that we can be found in you today and all days going forward. That we can recognize the gift that we have through your son, Jesus Christ, who's given us the greatest gift of all to be rescued from the curse of sin and all that would distract us from your glory and put us, in fact, within proximity to your glory and your holiness, that we might be more like your son, Jesus Christ, because we are transformed. Prepare us for that reality, God. This we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.